It amazes me how this guy who up until now hadn't even quote, received the gifts for himself, had such a charisma that he was able to convince people and lots of people that this was a real thing and that people should be seeking it actively. It was supposed to be a sign that the end was near. And well, here we are, 115 years later, after Azusa Street, and again, I'll ask the question, where the fuck is he? Even the traditionalists among them, even the ones who literally closed themselves off to Seymour's messaging, eventually joined his ranks because finally, at long last, there was something there to justify their faith. Somehow, this thing that would eventually be called Pentecostalism seemed to be a huge ecclesiastical black hole sucking in anyone within its reach that already had tendencies toward any flavor of Christianity. It wasn't just this one thing, but this was the thing that made it explode. Welcome to Unbound, a podcast for new atheists and lifetime atheists, ex-evangelicals, truth seekers, and free thinkers. There is life after faith. And life here is good. It's time for a new perspective. And a better conversation. I'm Spider. And I'm Shell. And it's time to get Unbound. You know, as humans, we like to think of ourselves as being complex, independent, free-thinking sorts of beings. We like to view ourselves as being in control of our thoughts, feelings, emotions, whatever. But it amazes me just how easy it is to manipulate people and get them to believe things based on nothing more than the ability to persuade. It also impresses upon me how quickly we fall into these games of follow the leader when just a few people around us start gravitating towards specific ideas. We see it with the Cult of 45 as a prime contemporary example, but there have been so many others, including the story we're going to be examining tonight. I'm Spider. And I'm Shell. And tonight, we're going to be taking a look at the Azusa Street Revival and all the circumstances and events that led up to it. We'll talk about some of the key players and show how the whole thing came together to form, among other smaller organizations, our beloved Assemblies of God. And by beloved, I mean hated, despised, and worthy of any and all mocking we can throw at it. But before we get into our discussion of William J. Seymour and co., pathetic policies at Patheos, the proliferation of plants in paradise, and the pettiness of a pope who hates pets, it's... Christians Behaving Badly, the Functionally Alliterative Edition. So alliterative. What have you got for us tonight? If you go to the non-belief section of the Patheos website, you'll see that they haven't updated much lately. In fact, most of their content is more than a month old. This is due to a change in rules in the website, which has put a lot of atheist bloggers off on using the platform. Gee, I wonder why. Can't imagine. The Patheos channel manager, Dale McGowan, said that the owners, which is BN Media, wanted to rebrand in order to attract more religious business to advertise on their various channels. This could be difficult to do with a whole channel devoted to criticizing religions of all kinds. So Patheos decided to change its editorial direction. Bloggers were advised that they could stay at Patheos so long as they stopped writing negative or critical posts on religion or politics and instead focus on how to live a good life within their own worldview. So at the end of 2021, about 15 atheist bloggers left the site to go to a new site specifically for atheists called Only Sky, a reference found in John Lennon's song Imagine. It's slated to open in January, so hopefully soon. The website is onlysky.media, 
I've signed up for notifications for when the site goes live. It'll take you right to a place where you can be notified. It'll be nice to have all those resources in one place again, yes. especially him at Meta. Yeah. I mean, he's found a new temporary home, but, you know, yeah. just the whole searching around aspect of this, especially for, I mean, most atheist podcasters, let's, let's be real here. Most atheist podcasters get this kind of content or did from that site. Yes. So now it's, it, it's kind of a toss up what we're going to get to talk about and the digging that you have to do now just yeah. to find good stories is difficult. So I do hope this works out. I hope yeah, it works I out for so us, too. but I hope it works out for the general public too, yeah. so that they have this resource in one place. It's so much easier to tap once than 50 times to get the information that you're <laughs> yeah. looking for. So yeah. I do hope that this proves to be a good move for everybody and that it works out. Not really Christians behaving badly, but a website shooting itself in the foot. Basically. For for uh, people telling the truth. Right. Yeah. 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 Some of their biggest blogs are on the non-belief side of Patheos. Mm -hmm. It kind of sucks, but yeah. I mean, this was a bad decision. Well, yeah. Overall, it was a bad decision. I mean, if the idea is to be able to have an even discourse on subjects like this, then why are we taping the mouths shut of people who are telling the truth about religion? I found some very good stuff oh, sure. on that site that wasn't on the non-belief end too. Right. But, you know... You got to choose your battles more wisely. This was a bad move, and yeah. they're going to figure it out. They probably have already, but it's yeah. a little bit too late to unring the bell. Yep, very much. What have you got next? Oh, oh, oh my goodness. I, I'm asking what you've got next, and then I'm looking down in your notes. And there's Oh, my that. God, she's back. She's back. And better than ever. Not really. Yeah, no. Uh, <laughs> yeah, not quite. Yeah, Cat Care is still making her journeys to heaven and reporting back on all the candy-coated nonsense she comes up with. For instance... Did you know that John Wayne is still making cowboy movies in heaven? It's totes true. Cat Care saw it herself. Did she provide the titles for any of these movies? No, no, no. I mean, it's not like he's going to be going after bad guys or anything. It's just cowboy movies. So just him riding around on a horse and shit. Okay. I guess. All right. Because apparently, she says, you do in heaven what you did on earth. That doesn't sound biblically sound to me. No, it doesn't. It sounds it, much more pagany. Yeah. And it sounds a lot more like some of the uh, traditions that we talked about when we were talking about the afterlife back in October. Yeah. And also, she says, when you garden in heaven, all you have to do is speak over the ground and the plants just start growing. Steve Schultz looked really impressed with that one. Well, he, he looks impressed at pretty much anything that she says or any of the other nutters that he has on his channel. Well, yes. He's not a critical thinker. Well, no. <laughs> I mean, that's, that's putting it lightly. <laughs> He's a bobblehead. I mean, I, he, he just sits there and agrees with everything that these people say and do. Yes. And, you know, as I was reading your notes on this, the only thing I could think of, was, you know, she's talking about, oh, you just look at the ground and whatever plants you want just sort of magically appear. Yes. My mind went directly to the Yule Ball in Goblet of Fire. Yeah. Where Dumbledore looks down at his plate and says, pork chops and pork chops appear. Yes. So same concept. I wouldn't be a bit surprised if that's where she got it or hey, someplace hey, similar. you never know where they get this stuff. So kind of short and sweet with the stories tonight, but that's okay. We've got a lot to talk about, yeah. but I definitely want to look at this one i mean some yeah. of the other shows have already done it but i don't care because this is and it's just the epitome of stupid yes. and it really really shows this guy's true colors i liked him 
Yes. When he was newly installed in his position, I actually liked him. Yeah. But there have been a lot of things that have happened since. I think I think he's looked at a lot of the attendance stats in like the Catholic churches in the USA. And mostly it's people in the USA. And he thinks this is gonna solve the problem. It's okay, not. that's enough that's enough build up. What are we talking about here exactly? Finally, a guy who doesn't have children and runs an institution known for harming kids says that childless couples who adopt dogs and cats instead of children are selfish. Of course, we're talking about Pope Francis. Okay. Yeah. It's selfish. It's not responsible. It's right. it's okay, not uh, it's not just good training ground for when you actually do have kids because it can be raising a pet can be good training ground yeah. for raising a kid because as a pet owner, I can tell you, your pet stays a kid for its entire life. Yeah, it does. So, <laughs> you know, it's actually good training ground for if and when, but it's also a worthy substitute yeah. if you don't want to have kids. Right. I mean, this is not selfish. This is just a personal decision right. that someone makes for any number of reasons. Mm. But I'm not going to steal your thunder because you make the point as to why you think he has yeah, a problem yeah. with this. Oh, so yeah. I'll just let you do your thing. He argues that their decision to forego parenthood leads to a loss of humanity and is a detriment to civilization. He goes on to say, we see that people do not want to have children or just one and no more. And many, many couples do not have children because they do not want to, or they just have one. But they have two dogs, two cats. Yes, dogs and cats takes the place of children. Yes, it's funny, I understand, but it is the reality. And this denial of fatherhood or motherhood diminishes us. It takes away our humanity. And in this way, civilization becomes aged and without humanity because it loses the richness of fatherhood and motherhood. And our homeland suffers as it does not have children. Yeah, about that. You're just afraid people won't be having as many Catholics. He pretty much says it. Yes. I mean, these words can be interpreted any number of ways, but maybe just a little bit of a Freudian slip. And this denial of fatherhood or motherhood diminishes us. It diminishes your numbers. Yeah, and your money. Yeah, and the eventual monies that would come in. They don't like using the word tithe in, in the Catholic Church. No, they don't. But it does diminish the offerings that go of into course. the plate. So that really is the, the crux of it. Whether or not it was a Freudian slip or something else, there's a double meaning in there that I picked up on right away. Oh, yeah. I mean, with all of the people like leaving organized religion these days, everybody's feeling it. Oh, yeah. I mean, it doesn't it's not, matter what denomination it is. No, it's not like you're alone. There are a bunch of Catholic churches that have gone under two on our street. Oh, yeah. Two. And many, many more in the greater community around here. A yeah. lot of churches are closing yeah. and consolidating because they just don't have the butts to put in the seats anymore. Yeah. And as I've said for several weeks running, this is good news. Yes, it is. I don't care if it's an evangelical church or a Catholic church. If it's a church that closes, it's good for society. Get ready for the great decline, dude. Yeah, get ready. Well, get, I don't know about get ready. It's happening. It's happening. It's happening right now. It's and been they're happening scared. for years. They're scared. Yes. And they should be. They should be. But don't deny me my fur babies because you're scared. I know, right? No, I'm not denying my chance at fatherhood, okay? Number one, I already have a 22-year-old. 
And granted, it's only one, and he seems to have a problem with that, too. Well, you know how big those families used to be. Well, sure. But I also know plenty of Catholics, including my mother and my grandmother, who used contraception anyway. Right. And they were not alone. They were far from alone. No, of course. Because, as I've said many, many times over, regardless of what their religion is, people are always just going to do what they want. And if people want to have kids, they're going to have kids. If they want to have dogs, they're going to have dogs. I understand that it diminishes the number of people that you get to indoctrinate and get into their wallets. But at the same time, they have many, many, many reasons for wanting to bring new people in. And money is just one of them. Right. So if they don't keep making new Catholics, then there isn't a Catholic church anymore. Right. And that's the same of any any church, but right. it's especially true in this case. But as for their troubles, they've had legal troubles, and they keep trying to shift blame on other people or hide what they've done in their church. And they're not good at either one. They're not good at either one. And instead of actually paying these people from their rich coffers, I'm sorry, these people still have a ton of money. Oh, yeah. And it's like, no, I'm sorry. Just pay the people. Pay up your debts. Absolutely. For destroying these people's lives. Oh, yeah. I wish that we had the time to delve more into Catholicism on this show, but that's not our key focus. I don't mind when they show up in Christians behaving badly, but, you know, we kind of have to move on from that at this point. I don't think that anyone who's listening to this show or who listens regularly has any confusion as to what this organization is. And in many ways, it's way, way more nefarious than the Assemblies of God will ever be. Mm. But I look at organizations like the Assemblies and other Pentecostal churches and other evangelical organizations, I don't gauge them against the Catholic Church because they all have their own brand of hypocrisy that they need to answer not to God, but to society for. Yeah. And on that happy note, our Patreon is active at patreon.com slash Unbound Podcast Network. Any size donation will be appreciated if you can help us out in any way, shape, or form. We're glad to take that money that you send and put it to good use, making things a little bit better around here, a little bit more polished maybe, and just continuing to churn out the content that we're churning out week after week. If you have the means to help us out, We would definitely appreciate it. But if not, we understand that too. So help us out with your likes, your shares, your five-star ratings, and all the things that make podcasts grow. And together, we can help more people get and stay unbound. If you want to be part of that, those are the ways that you do it. With your dollars or with your support in other ways, like telling someone new about us this week, especially someone that you know would benefit from the messaging that we deliver on this show. You could be one of the pivotal things in that person's life that gets them to the point where they can say that they are unbound from this religion that does a stellar job of framing love as hate and hate as love. So really, really short and sweet on the Christians behaving badly front and on my appeal this week. I just want to dive right into this conversation on the Azusa Street Revival. We're going to tease next week just a little bit later and let you know what's going on in the the next week or two with the show. But for right now, let's just jump right in and get this conversation started. started researching this topic, I was led directly to the Assemblies of God's own website, where they seemed enigmatically proud of the characterization the LA Times made of the situation at Azusa Street. This is just a bit of what they consider selling points. (laughs) They think these are positives, ladies and gentlemen. Quote, 
According to the Los Angeles Times, a bizarre new religious sect has started with people, quote, breathing strange utterances and mouthing a creed which it would seem no sane mortal could understand. Furthermore, devotees of the weird doctrine practice the most fanatical rites, preach the wildest theories, and work themselves into a state of mad excitement. Colored people, their term not mine, and a sprinkling of whites compose the congregation, and night is made hideous in the neighborhood by the howlings of the worshipers who spend hours swaying forth and back in a nerve-wracking attitude of prayer and supplication. To top it all off, they claimed to have received the, quote, gift of tongues, and what's more, quote, comprehend the babble. Now, here's an interesting point. I wonder, I wonder if white evangelicals in the Assemblies of God, the largest Pentecostal organization on the planet, realize that their roots and the foundations of nearly all they believe in practice involve black congregations from all over the country. This was a big thing. And it wasn't just concentrated to Azusa Street. Azusa Street was a huge melting pot. And we're going to look at that in a couple of minutes too. But here's just how far group hysteria can go. This is also from the Assemblies of God. This is information they think is going to shine a positive light on what they do. Quote, a visiting Baptist pastor said, The Holy Spirit fell upon me and filled me literally as it seemed to lift me up. For indeed, I was in the air in an instant shouting, Praise God! And instantly I began to speak in another language. I could not have been more surprised if at the same moment someone had handed me a million dollars. This guy literally thought that he had been levitating and had no qualms telling people about it. Funny how they don't expect us to look for that as part of the initial physical evidence. <laughs> I mean, why not? This was one of the first ones. Yeah. He wasn't the first. We'll talk about the first in a minute. Mm. And just like the Brownsville and Toronto revivals that we will be covering in future episodes, Azusa Street seemed to have a companion revival happening around the same time in Wales. Just about a year or two prior, the same kinds of reports were coming from believers in Wales, and the media was projecting that at least 100,000 people had converted to what the AG would call real Christianity during that time. You can only imagine that things were already brewing in certain places in the States, but like with anything else, strength in numbers proved to be a powerful force. The Welsh revival lasted from September 1904 to June 1905. The Welsh converts and leadership behind the revival became convinced that they were experiencing the latter rain that was prophesied throughout the Nebi'im, and that's the prophetic branch of the Old Testament, and reinforced in James 5.7. Be patient, therefore, brethren, unto the coming of the Lord. Behold, the husbandman waiteth for the precious fruit of the earth, and hath long patience for it, until he received the early and latter rain. Now, I searched a number of sources about the difference between former rain and latter rain, and every last one looked at it from the standpoint of prophecy and symbolism. I personally think that given the audience of a lot of these books, letters, and the things that comprise the Old and New Testament, I think that it had to have a more agricultural context, like former rain for your main harvest and latter rain that would produce a bumper crop, something along those lines. I can't tell you for sure because it was next to impossible to find anything practical yeah. on this. In my brain, that interpretation of it makes a lot more sense. But when your goal is to apply meaning to things that suit your argument, you do things like this. You say that it means one thing and then make it difficult as fuck to suss out the real meaning. I have no idea how these people do it. 
creating these walls of false information that you have to digitally scale to find the truth. Or better still, the way that things get hidden and nearly impossible to dig up. You know how many times I've decided on a topic for this show and then had no end of grief and trouble trying to find good source material because they cover their tracks well. They make sure that the first thing that you see when you start researching something on Azusa Street is this drivel from their own website. And they want you to think that these are good things. They want you to think that these are reasons why you should be a Pentecostal evangelical because these things happened. And it absolutely amazes me just how easy it can be to get people to believe certain things. I've said it a few times since we started, but we're going to get into that in a couple of minutes too. So these people latched on to the latter rain concept as a means of justifying everything that I just described and much, much more. This was also one of the things that on the heels of John Darby and his End Times platform put the concept of imminence in the minds of evangelicals. For those not in the know, imminence is one of the 16 fundamental flaws. And it says that the return of Christ can happen at any time. I have been taught this from the moment that I became a born-again Christian. I have been taught that this can happen at any time, that Christ's return is imminent. There are signs of the end all over the place, and we need to be watchful and we need to be ready. And the things that people in all of these revivals that were going on were seeing were believed to be manifestations of the latter rain that they had been promised, and that it was a fulfillment of Joel 2.28 repeated in Acts 2.17, where it says, And it shall come to pass afterward that I will pour out my spirit upon all flesh, and your sons and daughters shall prophesy, your old men shall dream dreams, your young men shall see visions, and it goes on from there. But there was also a problem here that they have yet to resolve, that being the tie-in between the latter rain and the return of Christ, because it was supposed to be a sign that the end was near, like really, really near. And well, here we are, 115 years later, after Azusa Street, and again, I'll ask the question, where the fuck is he? (laughs) Azusa Street also had started infiltrating more fundamentalist circles and was causing lots of waves, particularly in the Baptist community. Oddly enough, Baptists were adopting Pentecostalism in droves and were thoroughly convinced by the concept of a second act of grace. Now, I say Azusa Street, it actually started before then. There were multiple little factions that were kind of adding fuel to this fire over time, but it was the people involved, I should say the people involved, with Azusa Street and all the things that happened as part of this story that were responsible for a lot of this. So it wasn't just this one thing, but this was the thing that made it explode. And that's why we're focusing on it. Just to back up just a little bit, the Baptists were adopting Pentecostalism in droves, as were a lot of people in other mainline Protestant denominations. And then there was this whole business of a second act of grace Salvation was necessary to purge the soul of sin so that the Holy Spirit could indwell the believer. That was the way that it was always framed with me. Right. And even then, even as I was having this stuff crammed into my brain, I sat there thinking to myself, so how many acts of grace are there? I had the Baptist telling me that I was saved just because I asked for it, but Then later, I was told that I also needed to be baptized as an outward sign of faith. But wait, wasn't that why I was dragged to the altar during camp? Wasn't that supposed to be my outward sign of faith? 
like I was confessing him before men so that he wouldn't deny me before God. It's enough to make your head spin. Yeah. And I started thinking to myself that these Pentecostals are driving the whole water baptism thing with me now too. Do I need to do that before I can get Holy Spirit baptism? It sounds like a disjointed and very dull RPG. (laughs) That's what it started feeling like at one point because not only did I have these questions, but I got as many different answers to them as I asked people about them. Yeah. So that just made it all the more muddy and murky inside my head. So my question then and it never got answered, was this. How much grace is actually sufficient? I think that Azusa Street and many of the things that came after it blurred those lines considerably. And after a while, it all boiled down to what people were going to believe. Hardline Baptists, for example, never bought into the second act of grace nonsense, although certain individuals did. But for the most part, they just rejected it outright. And if word of life is any indication, they just considered it all nonsense and adhered to their own doctrine and went back to their own way of thinking about things. And that was it. New churches formed and over time, the disconnect from all this latter rain stuff was complete because all they needed was more churches reinforcing their doctrine and they got them. So, you know, they, they managed to stay separate, but there were a lot of people who crossed these, um, ecclesiastical lines and decided that they were going to believe people like the ones that we're about to introduce and all of the things that they were preaching and and teaching, even though at that point, none of them could provide any proof that it was real or that they could do any of this stuff themselves. So it's batshit when you think about it now, but I don't know, there was a part of me when I was younger where it all just sort of made sense. Right. But as Paul would tell you, when I was a child, I thought like a child. Well, I'm a grown up now. And I think like a grown-up, I put away childish things. And at this point in my life, I look at something like this and it's like, yeah, no, this makes absolutely no sense. And it feels good to have grown up and to have grown past spirituality. It feels really, really good. But see, here's the thing. People change churches and flavors of churches all the time. You have to admit that the things going on in Pentecostal revivals was a lot more entertaining than singing along with A Mighty Fortress is Our God in some stuffy Baptist church service. And people being people, the things that excite, engage, and entertain will always turn at least a few heads. And it turned a lot in especially Azusa Street, but it started happening before. It's funny to me how there are different organizations out there who think that they can take credit for Pentecostalism being a thing. But what it really boiled down to was a mutation of the holiness movement in the late 1800s. According to author and blogger Tim Challies, the roots of the Azusa Street Revival and the Pentecostalism it birthed are entwined with the holiness movement of the late 19th century. This was a renewing movement within the Wesleyan tradition, Wesleyan tradition, that emphasized complete sanctification and taught that moral perfection is available to Christians. It was marked by a heavy emphasis on personal holiness, most often displayed through a close adherence to the law as a means of drawing near to God. In general, early Pentecostal theology took Wesleyan theology as its starting place, then added to it certain new elements. We're going to talk more in depth about the Pentecostal holiness movement in a later episode too, but for right now, I want to keep the focus on this thing and what it grew into. So no, the modern Pentecostal movement didn't begin at Azusa Street. That's just where it blew up. It began with a guy named Charles Parham. 
Parham was the founder of the apostolic faith movement, which had its roots in the Midwest and would eventually morph into what we all call Pentecostalism today. And if you need any further reason to detest Bible college as an overall concept, all you have to do is realize that Pentecostal evangelicalism officially began at a Bible college in Topeka, Kansas. Bethel Bible School was Parham's baby, and boy did he take the opportunity to indoctrinate the shit out of young minds there. And like any good charlatan, he made his mark in Topeka and then made his way south, starting revivals and planting another Bible school, because why not? Twice the money is better than half. You know... I wrote papers on this stuff in college, and it was amazing how so much of it came rushing back while I was researching all of this. But what I find interesting now that I didn't notice then is just how Hollywood parts of this narrative actually are. It makes a person wonder if all these pieces just fell together or if a bunch of people got together and agreed on certain things. Mm. You know, it could be either. We probably won't ever know. I mean, we know it happened. Secular news sources at home and abroad said so, but they didn't have all the details, of course. All I know is that I'm sitting here reading this story and thinking, this reads like the plot of a movie. It's all very cinematic. How? Well, let's move on with the story and you'll see. So Charles Parham is spreading his apostolic holiness message far and wide. He is fleecing and aggressively indoctrinating as he goes, and along the way, he meets a guy named William J. Seymour. Seymour would eventually prove integral to the Azusa Street narrative, and not for nothing, but he was black. So here, to me, is the Hollywood part of the story. Well, one, one of the Hollywood parts of this story. William J. Seymour was born May 2nd, 1870 in Centerville, Louisiana. He was the child of former slaves Simon and Phyllis Seymour, and the AG says that his parents raised him Baptists. Other sources have him being raised Catholic. Looking at the Wikipedia entry about him, it would appear that both were true. His family started eventually attending a Baptist church because, well, it was there. And it was more accessible at that point to them than any Catholic church was. So I look at this and I think to myself, huh, another Catholic boy turned Baptist then drunk on the Kool-Aid. Looks like my story isn't unique. <laughs> there are certain holes in his story, though, just like with Jesus, because we pick his up years later in Cincinnati, Ohio. It is speculated that because racial tensions were growing in the South, William J. Seymour decided to migrate north to escape persecution and have some small guarantee of at least heightened safety. There are conflicting reports here, too. The AG plants him directly in Cincinnati, but public records show that his first stop was actually in Indianapolis, where he was exposed to apostolic holiness doctrine through Daniel S. Warner's Evening Light Saints. This is where he started becoming indoctrinated to beliefs like non-sectarianism, faith healing, foot-washing, the imminent second coming of Christ, and separation from the world in actions, beliefs, and lifestyle. This included things like not wearing jewelry or neckties. So this is what I think of when I think of Pentecostal holiness. Right. So in the summer of 1900, Seymour returned to Louisiana and worked briefly as a farmhand. Who knows why? But in 1901, he made his way back north, this time to Cincinnati, Ohio. He found work there as a waiter, and it is speculated that he attended God's Bible School and Training Home, founded by God's Revivalist Movement founder Martin Wells Knapp. The allure of this came in no small part with the fact that there was no segregation at this school. All the students studied side by side regardless of race and fuck Jim Crow laws, basically. Yeah. The teachings there were a lot like those he had already discovered in the Evening Light Saints movement. 
Both revivalist and evening light saints believed that they were living in the twilight of human history. But the revivalists had what looked to me like more clearly defined lines when it came to doctrine. They were end timers who believed in the rapture and that the rapture would happen before Christ's 1,000 year millennial reign on earth. So in evangelical terms, they were what we call premillennialists. They also preached of an outpouring of the Holy Spirit that would precede the rapture as outlined in the verses that we already cited. They also believed in special revelation that manifested in things like dreams and visions, tongues and interpretation, and more. William Seymour bought it all, hook, line, and sinker. The AG website says the people he interacted with at this time in his life, quote, deeply impressed him. In other words, they planted the seeds and he instantly started obsessing over their beliefs. Now there's another little time jump and here we are in Houston. After contracting smallpox and losing vision in his left eye and blaming himself for it because apparently he was resisting God's call to full-time ministry, Seymour then makes the move toward a life of ministry in 1903. I guess before God takes the other eye. Yeah. During the winter of 1904 to 1905, he was directed by a, quote, special revelation to Jackson, Mississippi, to receive spiritual advice from a well-known black clergyman. He probably met Charles Price Jones and Charles Harrison Mason, founders of what would become the Church of God in Christ. Between 1895 and 1905, Seymour also met other holiness leaders, including John Graham Lake and Charles Parham, who was leading a growing movement in the Midwest. And here's where the story starts to come full circle. While Seymour had already had at least an academic exposure to the concept, Parham's apostolic faith movement was pretty much founded on the belief in the ability to speak in tongues. From 1900 on, this was the focal point of all of Parham's teaching and preaching. He was also the first one to suggest the concept of initial physical evidence. This part I remember distinctly from college because it got me thinking about what I had been taught about glossolalia, and I had a kind of wait-a-minute moment over it, and I'll tell you why in a sec. On January 1st, 1901, Parham and some of his students were praying over Agnes Osman when she began to speak in what was interpreted to be Chinese, a language Osman never learned. Pentecostals identify Osman as the first person in modern times to receive the gift of speaking in tongues as an answer to prayer for the baptism of the Holy Spirit. Parham also spoke in tongues and went on to open a Bible school in Houston as his base of operations in 1905. Now, for me, the wait-a-minute factor was in that she was speaking an actual language because that's not the kind of glossolalia I was taught to believe in as initial physical evidence. You do, however, see it in the book of Acts, and it's worth noting that I learned this kind of glossolalia first in religion class in Catholic school, and oddly enough, they were okay with it. Of course, all these years later, I can easily conclude that either A, the story was bullshit, or B, those present decided she was speaking Chinese because they couldn't understand her, and it sounded like what they thought Chinese sounded like. So when Seymour moved to Houston, he met Lucy Farrow, who was working for Charles Parham's ministry and as his children's nanny. It's worth noting, though, that she actually had a bit more clout than that. She had a leadership position in Parham's ministry and was acting pastor of a small church in Houston. With responsibilities pulling her left and right, Farrow, impressed with what she saw in William Seymour, offered him a chance to pastor her church so she could focus on other aspects of Parham's ministry. And just to make sure he was teaching sound doctrine, quote-unquote, in 1906, Seymour was invited and accepted the invitation to attend yet another Bible school that was founded by Parham. 
This time, Jim Crow laws would reel their ugly heads and Seymour was forced to study while sitting just outside the classroom door. Yeah, then I see the eye roll over there. And yes, that's, it's an eye roll moment for me too. But that's just the way things were back then, unfortunately. Parham and Seymour shared pulpits and street corners on several occasions during the early weeks of 1906, with Parham only permitting Seymour to preach to blacks. And there were reasons for that. That kind of transcended racism. There were safety aspects to it as well. But, of course, it's all founded in racism, so I'm not making excuses. I'm just saying that that's the way that it was. During this time, Seymour continued praying that he would receive the baptism with the Holy Spirit. Though unsuccessful at the time, he remained committed to Parham's beliefs about speaking in tongues, but he rejected Parham's belief in the annihilation of the wicked and in the use of tongues in evangelism. Parham understood the gift of tongues to be xenoglossy. In Wicca, we had words like psychopomp. These yeah. people have xenoglossy. That was, um, that's different. Yeah. And it means unlearned human languages to be used for evangelistic purposes. I find it interesting that he would reject that part of it because that's precisely what you see in the book of Acts. When they all start speaking in tongues, there were people throughout that meeting place who said that they were hearing what the apostles were saying in their own languages. Right. So why he would um, why he would reject that outright, I have no idea. But of course, like I said a minute ago, I kind of had a problem with it too, because by the time I got around to learning this story, glossolalia had become a specific thing inside my head. So that's probably most of the reason right there. So here's where the story starts making its way to Los Angeles and the Azusa Street Revival. One day in late 1905, Neely Terry was in Houston visiting family probably for the holidays. She was also black and from Los Angeles, where she attended a small church that was part of the apostolic holiness movement. The pastor of the church in LA was Julia Hutchins. Amazing how things were more progressive then. Lots of women involved in key ministry roles. That wouldn't last long in the AJ. I don't really ever remember learning about the uh, women of Azusa Street in Bible College. I wasn't really interested much in the history of the Assemblies of God, mostly because the little I heard didn't involve women. You always heard about the businessmen's meeting mm -hmm. that erupted into a revival. Yeah. That's how it was always described to me. Yeah, it Not was. a word about women. Right. So I wasn't really interested, and it didn't surprise me either. I knew it was hard but not impossible for a woman to be a pastor, but I was today years old when I found out a woman... Rachel Sizelove, who was from the Azusa Street Revival, but she and her sister returned to their hometown in Missouri and opened the Central Assembly of God, the mother church of the Assemblies of God founded a year later. Yeah, and fast forward, not yeah. terribly long, just, you know, a matter of decades. Yeah. And now churches are leery of hiring a female yeah. for their pastor and... It's almost impossible for a woman to obtain a ministry role in the AG if she's not married. Right. It's not unheard of, but it's very, very difficult. Yeah. I'm still kind of surprised I didn't know this, but as far as I know, the presence and importance of women in the founding of the denomination I was working with was never really discussed. That the AG was founded out of the movement that saw its beginnings in Azusa Street was all I knew. That's all that, that was that all they, they really stressed. Right. That's all they really wanted you to know. Right. But that was also before the information age. Yeah. So 
they kind of can't hide where a lot of this stuff came from right. now or the people who were involved because there's so much documentation and it's so readily available that they have to kind of take a we can't beat them, we have to join them attitude with this yeah. now. It was a time in American history where women couldn't even vote. Yeah. You know? And yet a lot of the key players in this story were women. Yeah. And they were women who had positions of authority in the churches that they attended or pastored. Yeah. You know, they they weren't just pew sitters. The women were the ones that were running a lot of the show with a lot of these churches, even the ones that had male pastors. Right. They were in charge of a lot of the things that made the ministry work. And this is just one example. It's a big one, but it's just one. So just jumping back into the story, while she was in Houston, Neely Terry heard Seymour preach on the subjects of Holy Spirit baptism and initial physical evidence. It amazes me how this guy who, up until now, hadn't even, quote, received the gifts for himself, had such a charisma that he was able to convince people, and lots of people, that this was a real thing and that people should be seeking it actively. Terry was so impressed that when she got home, she asked Julia Hutchins to invite him to speak there. Seymour received the invitation in February 1906 and got a little money from Charles Parham to cover his expenses and set out on this trip that was supposed to last a month. So on February 22nd, 1906, William James Seymour arrived in L.A. and just two days later was preaching at Julia Hutchins Church, which was a very small space at the corner of 9th and Santa Fe Ave. During his first sermon, he told the congregation that speaking in tongues was the first biblical evidence of the infilling of the Holy Spirit. So how did this California audience receive this message? Well, on Sunday, March 4th, Seymour arrived for church to find that the pastor, Julia Hutchins, had padlocked the door. So not only did we have women in key ministry roles, we had at least reasonably smart ones in those roles. You know, when I got to this part in the story, my first question was, what the fuck happened? Yeah. But unfortunately, this story doesn't really have a happy ending. You're going to see a prime example of the power of suggestion and also a few other things that factor in. But even the smart people in this story will disappoint you. A little spoiler alert. <laughs> but the smart people in this story will eventually disappoint you. As it turned out, the elders of the church kind of thought Mr. Seymour was a bit of a loon. And this group of people was also at least smart enough to question anyone teaching on something like this who couldn't demonstrate that it was real. At least at first, at least at first, there was some semblance of logic that was going on here. Didn't last long. But the Holiness Church Association of Southern California also condemned his messaging. And this was kind of the anchor organization with which Hutchins and by association, the church that she pastored was affiliated. So he's kind of pissing some people off. But as we're about to demonstrate, you can find followers for literally any lunatic. I mean, just look at the 2016 presidential election. And there were some people among that congregation who early on caught Seymour's drift. Some of them were actually taken in. I would assume it would have had to be by his charisma and wanted him to stay. A member of the congregation named Edward S. Lee invited Seymour to stay in his home. And this 
is where Seymour started holding Bible studies and slowly but surely started building momentum for his messaging from a small band of the less enlightened among a congregation whose pastor was clearly smarter than they were. And I'll stand by that even with what she does later because there's a reason why she did it. I'm, I'm, I'm certain there's a reason why she did what she did. I do believe that this is where the notion of modern Pentecostalism being the product of rebellion comes from. I heard that a lot back in the day, sometimes in the context of criticism, but usually in one of praise. I mean, there would have been no AG if this guy had accepted defeat and went home, right? Mm -hmm. So now we're inching ever closer to Azusa Street, but we have one more stop to make along the way. So Seymour was amassing followers, not in huge numbers, but enough to get that forward momentum that his messaging needed. Needing a bit more space, they relocated to the home of Richard and Ruth Asbury at 216 Bonnie Bray Street. At that point, something interesting started to happen. They started getting the attention of white families, and several of them followed Seymour down the initial physical evidence rabbit hole. All of them were from local holiness churches, so they already had those seeds planted. This group started getting together regularly and would pray long and hard to receive Holy Spirit baptism. And then, on April 9th, 1906, something significant happened. After five weeks of regular gatherings, the constant indoctrination coming from Seymour, and being three days into a ten-day fast that Seymour had called them to, it was Edward S. Lee who broke the ice and began, quote-unquote, speaking in tongues. From there, the whole thing just snowballed. I was sitting, taking notes and thinking, how often do we see this? People waiting until that first person goes to the altar, or just even in secular contexts. If you're in a group of people and you're being asked to do something like, I, we need, let's say you're at some kind of like a magic show and they need five volunteers. Well, it's usually a minute or so before anyone stands up. And then as soon as one stands up, the other four are very, very quick to follow. So it's the same situation going on here. That's human nature 101. You know, a lot of them were probably sitting there and saying, let's see who does this first. That was what a lot of them were waiting for. So once Lee did it, it just felt safe for others to give it a go. And at the very next meeting, six more people began, quote unquote, speaking in tongues, among them Jenny Moore, who would later become Mrs. William Seymour. It took a few more days, but with much prayer and persistence, Seymour also began to speak in tongues. I mean, he was also fueled by the crowd and that gathering momentum, but I'm convinced he thought that it was all legit. I don't think this guy was trying to pull one over on anybody. I just think that he was a lunatic, and in certain contexts, I can agree with the law of attraction set on this one. Like does tend to attract like. One person started babbling, and it made other people feel better about just doing it. Now, Southern California always being a huge melting pot, the attention that this thing was getting crossed all present racial, economic, and cultural lines. Black, Hispanic, white, everyone was gathering together, and night after night, speaker after speaker would come in to keep the crowd whipped up. And since this was all happening in a private house, it was that much more visible. And it's not like they were trying to hide anything either. These people were out on the front porch of this house using it as a platform and a pulpit. But here's the absolute kicker for me. Hutchins eventually spoke in tongues as her whole congregation began to attend the meetings. Soon the crowds became very large and were full of people speaking in tongues, shouting, singing, and moaning. Talk about if you can't beat them, join them. 
She'd locked Seymour out of her church. Smart move. But only a short time later, she was guzzling the Kool-Aid. Also a smart move. Why? Because she would have had no more church and no more tithes if she didn't join his ranks. I mean, it's possible that she got caught up in the hysteria. And that's all this was. It's a textbook case of group hysteria 101. But it's far more probable that she just decided to give the market what it wanted because it's been the same old story since the beginning of time. The most popular product is determined by the market, not the marketer. Her messaging went stale, so she adopted this. I'm willing to think that she believed it on some surface level, but it took losing her entire congregation to reach a workable point of belief in this thing that only weeks before she was locking out of her church like the devil in the night. Finally, the front porch collapsed, and the group had to find a new place to meet. A resident of the neighborhood described the happenings at 216 North Bonnie Bray with the following words. This person does not sound like they were happy. No. They shouted three days and three nights. It was Easter season. The people came from everywhere. By the next morning, there was no way of getting near the house. As people came in, they would fall under God's power, and the whole city was stirred. They shouted until the foundation of the house gave way, but no one was hurt. So the group from Bonnie Bray Street, here we are finally, took their operations to 312 Azusa Street in downtown Los Angeles. The building was originally purposed as an African Methodist Episcopal Church. That's quite the hybrid. Really? I was told I was today years old when I realized that a church could be a mutt. But here we are. The place wasn't exactly in the best part of town either, so I have to imagine that it must have seemed sketch to anyone on the outside looking in. Then again, I did some work in an inner city church in Philly that was the definition of sketch. And I don't know what it is, but the bad element seems to just have a tendency to leave churches alone for the most part. It's not a hard and fast rule, but it's what I've observed in a lot of the uh, stuff that I did, especially in college. It's like if the church is in a bad area, that doesn't necessarily mean that there's going to be trouble. And I mean, I never heard of anything going on in Azusa Street that was questionable in terms of, you know, people trying to upset the apple cart. But then again, who knows? There's this is a big story. And not all the details are out there for consumption. But the people at Azusa seemed pretty comfortable there, and the price was right. The rent was $8 a month for what one local paper described as a, quote, tumble-down shack. Still, it was standing empty, and now it wasn't, which I'm sure made the landlord happy. It had been used for other purposes over time, my favorite one being a tombstone shop. What an unlikely foreshadowing. I wonder if they were whitewashed tombstones. (laughs) But there was more. This place provided lodging. The church could rent rooms or use them to house guest preachers as needed. And the building basically looked like a big cube with some Gothic architecture on the outside so that people would know, at least originally, that this was, in fact, a church. The Azusa property would come to be known as the Apostolic Faith Mission, and Seymour and Jenny made use of the on-site accommodations. There was also a large... um, a player room? That would have been more fun. There was also a large prayer room with chairs and benches to manage overflow from the altar services below. By the middle of 1906, you could find anywhere from 300 to 1,500 people trying to fit into the building for services. I'm sitting here in the current health and social climate thinking, what if this had happened a decade or so later? 
would we be talking about Azusa as a hotbed for the Spanish flu? Because you have to know that people this drunk on the Kool-Aid weren't about to quarantine and social distance, not at this point. Another interesting fact here is that since the building had recently been used to house horses, there were flies, lots and lots of flies. I'll just drop the Baal Zabul reference right there and leave it. The <laughs> Lord of the Flies reference and leave it right there. I also found it fascinating that this movement seemed to be founded on a platform of diversity and it defied all social norms that were present in the Jim Crow era. And yet, with all that diversity and acceptance, the Pentecostal movement has played no small role in the uprising of white evangelicalism. It would appear that social attitudes and prejudices were just a tad bit more powerful than the Holy Spirit. It was true then, and it's way true now. But the movement did have its detractors, most of them secular, because somehow this thing that would eventually be called Pentecostalism seemed to be a huge ecclesiastical black hole sucking in anyone within its reach that already had tendencies toward any flavor of Christianity. But in a skeptical front page story titled Weird Babble of Tongues, a Los Angeles Times reporter attempted to describe what would soon be known as the Azusa Street Revival breathing strange utterances and mouthing a creed which it would seem no sane mortal could understand. Well, there's your operative right there, isn't it? No sane mortal. <laughs> and in September 1906, another local paper described the happenings at Azusa this way. It was called a disgraceful intermingling of the races. They cry and make howling noises all day and into the night. They run, jump, shake all over, shout to the top of their voice, spin around in circles, fall out on the sawdust blanketed floor, jerking, kicking, and rolling all over it. Some of them pass out and do not move for hours as though they were dead. These people appear to be mad, mentally deranged, or under a spell. They claim to be filled with the Holy Spirit. They have a one-eyed, illiterate Negro as their preacher who stays on his knees much of the time with his head hidden between the wooden milk crates. He doesn't talk very much, but at times he can be heard shouting, Repent! and he's supposed to be running the thing. They repeatedly sing the same song, The Comforter Has Come, over and over and over. And this, right here, is where we get the term Holy Rollers. There were other monikers that didn't really stand the test of time that they also used, like Holy Jumpers, Tangled Tonguers, and Holy Ghosters. But despite the detractors, Azusa Street started gaining both national and international attention. Some sources painted them in a good light, others not so much as we just saw. And some of those sources delivered their messaging far more fraught with racism than they really needed to. Uh, yeah. So by the end of 1906, most leaders from Azusa Street had spun off to form other congregations, such as the 51st Street Apostolic Faith Mission, the Spanish Apostolic Faith Mission, and the Italian Pentecostal Mission. These missions were largely composed of immigrant or ethnic groups, so you can see the cultural split beginning only months into this thing. The movement grew rapidly throughout the American Southeast, mostly because there were similar movements taking place there. It only takes a spark and all that. Seymour had his messaging down, and it just made sense to people who were already of the mindset to receive it. And it seemed like the more charismatic and energetic the preacher, the faster the message would spread. Again, Human Nature 101 and the concept of the better story. Incidentally, our review of Life of Pi drops in two weeks. So there's your quick little promo. 
But many of the existing Wesleyan holiness denominations adopted the Pentecostal message, such as the Church of God, anchored in Cleveland, Tennessee, the Church of God in Christ, and the Pentecostal and the Pentecostal Holiness Church. The formation of new denominations also occurred motivated by doctrinal differences between Wesleyan Pentecostals and their finished work counterparts, such as the Assemblies of God, formed in 1914, and the Pentecostal Church of God formed in 1919. An early doctrinal controversy led to a split between Trinitarian and Oneness Pentecostals. The latter founded the Pentecostal Assemblies of the World in 1916 and the United Pentecostal Church of 1945. So the AG, regardless of what they want you to believe, were not the only game yeah. that came out of Azusa Street. There were plenty. Mm. It just so happens that they're the biggest and baddest. Yeah. So that all covers the what in terms of how things got moving with Pentecostalism. But I also think it's important to understand the why. So next week, we're going to take a closer look at that question and zero in on how charismatic preachers and cult leaders managed to amass so many followers, even among those that don't meet a specified demo or don't agree with them initially. How are so many people in LA won over to this? Why does it still work today in cases like the Branch Davidians, Heaven's Gate, Jonestown, and more? We aren't going to go into a lot of detail on those specific things, but there are common threads that run through all of them, which we will get to examining a little bit next week. Right now, however, I have just a few parting thoughts. The Azusa Street story, to me anyway, is a prime example of how one person can make a difference, especially if his or her messaging comes with generous smatterings of things like personal power and mysticism. As people, we love being able to see through the shadows of our understanding of things. For many, the baptism in the Holy Spirit provided clarity and completeness to their faith. They had no other tangible proof that their God even existed until they saw and experienced this supposed initial physical evidence of the Holy Spirit. For many, this manifestation was the proof they craved, and even the skeptics, even the traditionalists among them, even the ones who literally closed themselves off to Seymour's messaging, eventually joined his ranks because finally, at long last, there was something there to justify their faith. Other people had other motives, but for the average pew-sitter, that's what it was. And that really, for me, begs the question of where was God during the height of American slavery? Where was God in the midst of the poverty and urban plight that surrounded the Azusa Street Church? Where was he in the static messaging of mainline Protestant denominations? Why did Pentecostalism catch on and spread like wildfire the way that it did? Because it's supposed to answer those questions. God was there all along, waiting for the right moment to reveal himself and provide the proof that people were craving. The problem was that it wasn't God. It was textbook group hysteria that was spurred on by the energy and excitement of just a few, beginning really with just one in their midst. And when one person purported to have achieved this thing, now everyone wanted it. And just like popcorn in the microwave, it started with that one crucial pop in the form of Edward S. Lee. Then six more followed him. Pop, 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 pop. Then more, then more, then pop, 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 pop clean into the year 2022. And while this popping is starting to slow a bit, it's far from done. This is why it's so important that we keep drawing attention to the man behind the curtain. In this case, it's a man named William Seymour, whose own vigor and zeal managed to drive him crazy in the end. 
Some accounts of him in later years tell us that he even started to question the baptism in the Holy Spirit and the initial physical evidence of a prayer language. He even started preaching that the baptism in the Holy Spirit was more of a biblically symbolic way of expressing how Christians should divinely love each other. He sank further and further into self-doubt and eventually found himself without a ministry. That's a whole side story we don't have time for, but if you look up Seymour and Google William Durham along with it, there's a lot more to be learned here. It's just not about Azusa Street. But when his ministry fell apart, his entire perspective on this changed. It's easy to ride out, it's easy to ride the high in a large group, but when the ashes smolder away to nothing and the people disappear, what's left to fuel that zeal? The whole thing left William Seymour empty and with some very large cracks in his own faith. There's that fucking rational mind again, and I'll tell you what, it'll get you every time, and we all have it. It's just a matter of using it. Sometimes people have to be told that they have it. <clears throat> Sometimes people have to be told that they have it. And this is one of the primary goals of this show, to demonstrate how important it is to start thinking for yourself and stop suppressing the thoughts you have about this thing not really being all it's supposed to be. Because, listener, it's not at all what it's supposed to be. And I think that you're starting to get that message. And if you can figure out that you have the ability to think rationally, you might also reach a place where you no longer find it necessary to babble like an infant and call it proof of God. And once you have that straight in your head, you have two choices. Be like William Seymour and let the regret take over and start wrapping its tendrils around your overall experience of life, or simply let go of the time lost, forgive yourself for the crazy shit you did trying to justify your faith in a God that wouldn't deserve it even if he was real. Stop looking for reasons to believe in something that will never prove real and start getting unbound. hope you enjoyed this episode of Unbound. Show topics are chosen based on their timeliness, relevance, and social impact. Have suggestions for future topics? Email us at unbound.podcast.network at gmail.com with all your comments and feedback. Please don't forget to like, share, and throw a few five-star ratings our way and follow us on all major social platforms. And don't forget to hit subscribe if you haven't already. Links to our social pages as well as a full list of cited sources in today's episode are listed in the show notes available at our website, getunbound.org. That's get-unbound.org. If you value this resource and would like to see it continue, please consider supporting us on Patreon at the link in the show description. And be sure to check for new updates every Sunday when we'll come together again and take one more step toward getting and staying unbound. Unbound.